This is episode 32 of the Creative Strings podcast, featuring our special guest, the one and only Regina Carter. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, I'm really excited about this uh, next guest uh, to share with you. It is the one and only Regina Carter. Regina has had um, a tremendous impact in the jazz world, obviously the jazz uh, violin world, the violin world, and just the world of of music and culture, really. She's phenomenal um, as a musician, as an artist, and as a person. You're going to get to see that or hear that for yourself today. So grateful to Regina for um, sharing her time and her her authentic uh, perspectives in this episode. You're going to get her get to hear uh, her talk about all, all kinds of stuff, the stuff that's on her mind. This is really a treat. I'm really grateful to her. So um, hope you enjoy this episode with Regina Carter. Regina, thank you so much for joining me today on an early Monday morning, as you said, or at least for you, one of the afternoon. <laughs> I guess it's early. I get it. On a foggy Monday afternoon. Let's just. <laughs> um, what what projects right now? I'm curious. Are you excited about? Um. Well, I just sat in last night with uh, the great Chicho Valdez. At- and uh, Ron Carter and Lenny White. So that was wow. really exciting for me. I love Afro-Cuban music. I love those guys. But, I, you know, it's been a dream of mine to play with Chucho for a long time. So that was just a thrill to be able to play with him and all those guys last night. Um, just trying to figure out what my next project is going to be. And that's always... Um, a a bit of a a stressor for me because I have so many things that I love, so many genres of music, so many things that I want to do in music, outside of music. So it's really difficult for me to Hmm. uh, settle down and focus. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, I was wondering what are the things that um, are the litmus tests or the, you know, the things that get you to focus on a project? What are the different variables that you consider when you make that decision? Um, I always need deadlines. I work well with deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just say, oh, just you know, let us know when you're ready, it, it never happens. You know? <laughs> um, and that's just with everything. I'm just, it's always, I've always had a really difficult time focusing on everything, which mm. in on anything, which causes a lot of anxiety for me. So once people kind of place parameters on me, then it's kind of, it's, it's the structure that I need. You know, it's like my mom 
when I moved out of the house and it was I was living here and I was good and grown and she would sometimes call me on, and on the answering machine she'd say did you practice today and she'd giggle but it was just it's kind of sometimes what I needed to say okay get in there and, and do what you need to do I just once I can sit and settle down it's like what is it what is it that feels really important to me at the time uh, for each project and because I've I've never each project is always so different that makes it a little bit difficult too because the theme is not the same so mm -hmm. I'm not following a theme theme one theme two or record one two so sometimes that makes it difficult but right now I don't you know I know I have to figure out what a next record will be I don't know I have to sit myself down but I'm very interested you know I do hospice volunteer work Wow. And so um, I'm really right now I have a very strong calling for that and really a strong calling to sit with people when they're dying, like they're la the last stages of their life. I have a strong, strong. And so I'm following that. You know, I, I think for a long time, I felt like if I wanted to do anything other than perform on stage, I felt guilty about it. Mm. I felt like you have this gift. So I used to feel like if I didn't want to perform on stage that that was kind of a slap in the face to God like you're supposed to just play music I was talking to uh, a minister once and she said no you know God gives us many gifts you can use your music or other gifts that you have you know use your music for that so so that kind of gave me permission to not feel like I had to always just record or always perform or always you know there I can use my music in other ways which is it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful to be able to muse use music to help people feel better or to soothe them if they're feeling uptight, whether it be with hospice work or in hospitals or nursing homes, wherever it might be. You know, music serves so many purposes, and I tend to forget that. Mm. When you when you go to hospices or how do, how does that look like? What is that is it like? Can you describe like a a typical gig? At, at a hot, you know, when you're volunteering at a hospice? Yeah, well, when I um, first trained, I wanted to work with people in their homes because so many people, especially older people, el the elderly, a lot of that population, they live alone and they might not have other family members to help. Where even in the hospital, they might not have family members, but I feel like there's people around them, there's life around them. So I had three patients um, whom unfortunately have all passed away. But my first patient, I remember getting the call, and her name was Grace. And that was my mother's name. Mm -hmm. And I had been waiting a long time, so I thought, okay, there's a signal that I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling her, and she seemed a bit confused and so I called, and a little irritated. So I called her sister, and her sister said, yeah. Grace doesn't like anyone calling her before noon and blah, 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 which was so my mother. Don't call. So already <laughs> I felt like, okay, I know how to deal with you, you know. And I got there, and here's this, like, close to 90-year-old woman who would have to climb up and down 14 stairs to let people in. And she lived by herself, and her 80-something-year-old sister would come and try and see about her. But it was just, she just pretty much was there. Her eyesight was so bad, she couldn't really see the TV. She listened to the radio. So, you know, sometimes I played music for her. You know, she'd want to hear different things. But sometimes it was really just about being there mm. and keeping her company and talking about things or sitting with her while she had her meals. She was she wanted her independence, so I never, I only would, I'd go grocery shopping for her. But I wouldn't try and cook for her because that's something she could still do. 
So it's like learning to not like you're not saving someone. You can't save them. You can't. You still have to let them live and have as as much independence as they as they have, and just to really be there. And you know, it really put my life in perspective when I be upset about something or anxious about something. You know, to sit and talk to her and to know like she's waiting to make that transition. It just really put my stuff in perspective to say,、mm. you know what, all this you're worrying about. You're gonna leave it behind, and it's not that big of a deal. And not to say that our issues aren't real; they are. But when you're with someone like that, it just really helps to put everything in perspective. Well, I'm curious how volunteering for hospice. Well, two things actually. One, one is how that has affected your feelings、uh, being a performer on stage or when you're working on your projects,、um, but also what motivated you to to get into that work. I think what motivated me to get into hospice work was、um, when my mom was making her transition. I I went home、uh, to be with her, not knowing that she was she had cancer. And she had fought it and won three times. So I thought this was just going to be one of those times she was going to beat this thing. And I had, you know, I was out on the road and I got a phone call. You need to come home. And so I was home, and I think I was home for three months. And I was practically living in the hospital, just trying to really be there for her. And just seeing, like a lot of times, that nurses are are have way too many patients、mm. in certain hospitals. So you know, you might ring that button and it takes them forever. Everyone needs an advocate when they're in the hospital. I learned to do a lot to help take care of her, but I had one gig that I was supposed to do, and I was going to leave. And the doctor finally told me she's not going to be; she'll only be here a couple more days. So I canceled that gig, and I was sued for canceling that gig, which was it made me really bitter. At the same time as being really, you know, just here I'm angry already because I'm losing my mother. But then for someone to not understand that she's dying and to sue me over it. Made me even more bitter, and I just said I hate the music business.、So、I had a really negative outlook towards the music business, and just didn't want to do it anymore. And I remember John Clayton is the one that just saved me because he said, "If you stop playing music, then you you've allowed them to win. You can't let them steal that joy." And and that could happen in any business, not just music.、Right. I didn't play for my mom, but I would take CDs in and put music on. Because at one at at a certain point she couldn't communicate, but I knew she could still hear. Certain recordings I put on, and her vital signs would get really crazy, and then I take that off and put something else on, and they calm back down. So you know, you hear people say music is really powerful. It's really I can heal people, make me, and you just sometimes it just sounds like yeah, yeah, kind of airy fairy. But it's when you see it like that, it's so incredibly powerful. And just being there for her, I just thought, man, how many other elderly people. Are here that don't have someone, and I just wanted to be there for them. No matter what age you are, I think the way we deal with death or don't deal with it and don't talk about it in the in the United States, it makes it sometimes this thing that's bigger bigger than life. And I, as a child, was always I, I lost a friend when I was eight, and I just you know as an eight year old you can't really understand what death really is, and so I've I've always kind of been consumed with what happens to us. So this kind of helped me 
I feel like it's my link between this and the other side, so to speak, and not, to make it not so scary. And I, you know, I wanted to use music, but I didn't want to just necessarily go in and just play for people. I, I want to play for them if they want to hear music, but I just want to be there and hold their hand if that's what they need. That's and and you know, it affects me when I think about that and I'm on stage. You know, there's so many things that the voices in our heads can really mess with us, right. and I. I really have to fight those voices mm. all the time. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, this is a self-esteem issue, really. And it's, are, do people like me? You look in the audience, you might see someone kind of sitting like this, and, oh, they're bored, and all of a sudden my attention, instead of playing for everyone else, is trying to make them like me or make yeah. make this magic happen or play a killing solo. or play. And we can't control any of that, right. you know. Um, right. So if I can think about that, I try to say, get out of, get out of the way, hmm. get out of my own way, yeah. and just let you know. You might not play a whole bunch of notes on this solo. You might not play as fast as this guy. You might not play all these hip. You play what you be. You play what you play, and what I usually play is very simple. But if I'm out of my way and I'm trying to let the music flow through me and 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 connect to to the spirit, if you will, then I then it's then it's okay. It's okay because we can't control any of that. And once I can remember that and let it go, then the music is fun and I can be present in the music and mm. with everyone else on the bandstand. That really touches me to hear you talk about it that way because working in hospice like you did, you feel like that connects you to the spirit in a different way, like in, this, in, the, in the spirit of, of who you are, what it means for you to be a musician, what it is that you're called to do how it is that you're connecting with the audience, what is important in in you as a musician and in your voice, is that all connected to the idea of the spirit? And do you feel like hospice, working in hospice, allows you to connect with that more? Yeah, I definitely think, believe hospice brought that to light, that we're all spirit, we're all spiritual beings having a, what is it, a physical experience. And if I can remember that and hold on to that, I definitely think it helps me in the music because we are, you know, when you're on stage and you're playing with musicians and it's just like afterwards, you just, everyone feels on this high. You feel like, man, that was so killing. And the audience like really reacted. And it's not anybody on that stage that did that. They were, they were able to, to let go not let their egos get in the way, and I think connect in a spiritual place. I really believe when we play music, if we can let go, that we go somewhere else and we meet each other and we have these conversations, not not with our minds, just like it's not with our mouths, rather, but the music in our minds, and that's how I think spirits communicate. I, I know it sounds crazy, but I, I really, and I think the audience feels that. They respond to that. It's like being in church and, you know, when people get happy, it's the spirit, and you know, I can't help but go back to that night that you were playing with Piquito, the Bird with Strings project, and you took that solo. I'm telling you, the hair stood up. <laughs> You're too kind. I was Thank just you. Like, you know, <laughs> I told you that I was throwing something at you. <laughs> and it, was, it was that the spirit, and I could tell that the spirit hit you. Mm. I could, we could, we could all see it. Mm. The spirit hit you. The spirit was in you. I also like that you you sort of talked about on one hand these kind of the self-consciousness that we feel or the insecurities that we might think or the distractions that we feel sometimes when we're playing that have to do with all these, for lack of a better word, almost academic musical things. And also getting so caught up in 
a measure of ourself as being how fast we play or whether every note is perfect. Whereas when you go to volunteer in hospice and you put your instrument down and you hold someone's hand, that's sort of recognizing that we're not just our instrument. We're not just how we play. There's just one part of how we connect with people, but it's fundamentally us and other things about us that make us a whole person. I don't know if that if that makes sense to, yeah, if you agree with yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's totally it's totally it's a it's a it's a huge beautiful reminder, you know, of what what really this at at our core being what we're what we're about, what we're supposed to be about and all this other crap, these layers, just not even just in music but in life in general, what people get upset over um and just the hatred that people spew at one another and not you know just even you know I look on social media sometimes and I'm I'm always saddened especially when I see musicians or artists that that can be so nasty and say such nasty things to each other because I feel like we're supposed to be the most pure because we can connect with that spirit a lot easier maybe than than other people so I get it makes me really sad but I think if we can let go and get out of our own ways, like that's yeah, the something like hospice is just a huge reminder. Whatever someone wants to judge someone else over doesn't. We're all leaving this all behind. Hmm. I can't help but um, but ask the question in relation to this because it just comes up for me that I specifically didn't necessarily want to go into contrived directions in, in this interview with you and speak out of place, but you know, just thinking about how you're a woman in jazz and how your perspective about music, um, going talking about hospice and stuff like this. It makes me think, you know, what would the music world be like if there were more women if there were more femininity for lack of a better way to put it do you have any opinion about that or is that something you feel comfortable talking about yeah i just think the world over <laughs> you know and so and i'm not male bashing in any kind of way you know i just women are brought up to feel that's what kind of creatures we are we you know even when we talk if we're in a conversation we usually say well i feel blah 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 mm. and men say i think this mm. So even right there, it's really interesting. I think women, at least I know me, I overanalyze everything. We we spend a lot of time as women thinking about things, mulling them over, needing to talk about it, needing to, how did that make us feel and blah, blah, blah. Where men, it's just like, here it is, blah, blah, blah. They don't, they're on to the next thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It's just we're different in that way. And I think sometimes a lot of issues would be solved in a more positive light if women were dealing with them, uh, mm -hmm. or, or sometimes if men could just stop and say, you know what, let me back up and think about this, or I, I don't know, it's, it's, 
It's it's just it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, when all this Me Too started coming out, and you saw all these people on television, all these men that had been very inappropriate with women, and they started losing their jobs. I remember one day my husband looked at me. He goes, "One day we're going to turn on the television, and, and all the news stations is just going to be all women." And you know, I was like, "Yeah, wouldn't be a bad." <laughs> you know, it just it it, and not to say that there maybe aren't some women that are inappropriate. We're human beings. They're going to be, but I just think on a, a too just the way we're raised. Parents raise their sons differently than they raise their daughters. I saw it in my own house. You know, I, I remember my oldest brother uh, live. We all, my two brothers and I, we all live in New York. And so my oldest brother, uh, my mom once said, "Why don't you go over there and like, like basically clean his apartment, and help him?" I'm like, "Man, he's making enough money to hire all of us, a, you know, a cleaning service. Why should I?" Mm -hmm. But she expected that she would never tell him to come to my house and clean up. Mm -hmm. It was just how that old-fashioned thing of this is what women do although she never she never expected me or wanted she never pushed marriage on me she never pushed children on me it's just like if you want to play music and that's fine but there's certain things there's certain ways that we're raised those those roles I think it's gonna take a really conscious effort on the part of parents to raise their children not raise us as boys or girls, but to raise us as mm. equal children. Mm. You know, you're really so respected and so well known in the jazz industry and as a as one of uh, relatively few female artists in jazz. Um, I can only imagine that that would create a lot of pressure. And I'm curious if it has, if a lot of people have constantly looked to you to be a role model or to give advice for, for younger women, if you enjoy being in that position or if that's something you'd rather not have to deal with because, you know, why does it always have to be about that? Or is there anything, do you have any anything to say about that? You know, when I was younger, I didn't want to be put in that position. I was like, why do I have to be the role model? But you know, as I'm, I've matured. You just are. When you out, when you're out here, no matter what, we're all role models. Someone's always looking at us, whether we want them to or not. They're looking at the way, and we never know who's watching us mm. and watch and watching our behavior, the way we approach things. So that just is. You know, the performance starts once we leave our front door. Mm. And I don't mind speaking to young young women um, because I didn't necessarily have anyone to talk to. Um, not another woman when I was coming up, but I had, you know, I did have men in the business that I really respected and they really respected me. And I think they probably knew how difficult it could be for me being a woman or, you know, I think the, the most pushback I got when I got to New York was because I was a violin player, not because <laughs> I was a woman. <laughs> you know, Interesting. Was, you know. <laughs> But, you know, I had folks coming up in Detroit. There was a very strong music scene there. And one of my teachers was a great uh, trumpet player, Marcus Belgrave. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he would teach. So many of us came through him. Uh, Jerry Allen, Bob Hurst, uh, Rodney Whitaker, just the list goes on. And so he taught us about being in a band, leading a band, and just... So I never, and just so many great musicians I worked with, like, in, in Detroit on the scene, I never experienced any any weirdness because I was a woman mm. and I've, I've been fortunate enough. I think I haven't experienced the only thing I've experienced sometimes is, is that people want to 
try me. Like mm. they want to disrespect me on my bandstand. And it shouldn't matter if it's mine or theirs. Like they might not they might not learn the music and mm. just think they're just going to come on the gig where I know they wouldn't do that with a guy. Mm. But because it's my music, they think they can just come and it's like, okay, I can't, I'm not hiring you again. Mm. And there are certain cultures too that, you know, the way they treat women is very, it's almost second class citizens, you know. And, you know, you go to some cultures and instead of coming to me, although the presenter knows I'm the band leader, they go to one of the guys in the band. Mm. Now, when I was younger, that would bother me because I'd be like, I'm the band leader, you come to. But, you know, I'm older. I know it's their culture. I'm not going to change them. That's their culture. It's not mine. As long as the guys in the band respect me, they know as long as we get what we need, go ahead and tell them. I, it doesn't bother me. But um, I think young women, it seems now, and, and maybe always, yeah, I, I have had friends that have had issues with men being inappropriate with them. I think we have to really teach young girls how to deal with that. And how do you teach someone to deal with that you can say go tell someone immediately but you know we've been reading story after story mm. of young women that have gone to the heads of the department or the school and they get chastised as if it's their fault or they sweep it under the rug and it doesn't and, and they have to go through school feeling embarrassed or they drop out of school so you know the question becomes then if you go to someone higher up and nothing gets done then what do you do who do you go to do you go to the police you know uh, and I think women have to have to be taught to physically defend themselves as well, which is really everybody should just know that anyway. But it's just really sad to think that way. You know, if I had a daughter to think, you know, I want her I want her to know how to defend herself physically if that's if that becomes necessary. But I also want I want her to learn with her with words and forcefulness like, no, that's not cool. Mm. That's not, and and that you don't have to take it. But sometimes it's not even a sexual thing. Sometimes it's um, I've read stories where they try to make young, you know, might be a, there was a young lady who was soloing, and, and this one teacher tried to make her feel like she would like she wasn't playing like one of the guys. Uh -huh. she was, and it's just what I've learned is that's unfortunately that's that person's issue, not the young lady. That's that teacher. Well, he's got some issues. And if you could stay away from those people, any negative people, because we're all human beings, we got our issues, we got our crap. When I run into musicians like that, then I say, I say, okay, you know what? I don't want to do a gig if they're on it. Mm. So I find out who's in the band, and I don't, I don't take the gig, or um, I don't hire them. You know, I just keep myself out of that situation because I shouldn't have to pretend that it doesn't bother me. I shouldn't have to deal with that. It's amazing. Uh, again, it brings up for me just how much more, what other things are, are kind of important besides just the notes people play. And in the case of this, of this teacher referenced in the story, you know, they were telling a woman, you know, sound more like a guy, which I think about your message about in music about being authentic and connecting with the audience and being true to your calling or your voice, or at least that's what I take from what you're talking about, yeah. like getting out of the way, and that these things are so much more important anyway in musicianship. I don't know, I just rambled. <laughs> yeah, it really resonates with me.
if you enjoy Creative Strings podcast, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love. It's called Rockstar Violinist, and it's produced by our friends and sponsors at Electric Violin Shop. Just go ahead and search for Rockstar Violinist Podcast, and make sure you subscribe. They've got a lot of great episodes over there. They take a lot of care, just like we do at Creative Strings. They take a lot of care to try to produce good content for you all. So check them out. I love you, and I love our sponsors. We are really grateful to our sponsors for their support, and they are Yamaha. Yamaha, if you don't know already, and you should, they make the best electric string instruments, especially when you consider all the benefits that come and the the affordability, the range, the expanded line. Um, They don't only make uh, electric bowed string instruments, but they also make acoustic, and they support music education. So we depend on Yamaha. Creative string players depend on Yamaha. Did you know Creative Strings is a nonprofit organization, and we have a mission to support music education in many ways. We do that with online resources, online training. We also do it with our workshops that we present, which are now all over the world. We hope you'll check that out. Um, We also visit tons of schools every year. Um, Those are just some of the ways that we are trying to make a difference. Also with content creation, such as the free Creative Strings podcast that you're listening to now and the YouTube channel. Um, So if you go to christianhouse.com and click on education, um, you can learn about all these different resources. And we would love for you to take a free trial of the Creative Strings Academy. We'd love for you to look at some of the um, early bird discounts for workshops coming up. Maybe you want to bring us into your school or maybe you want to reach out to me directly and figure out a way that we can um, work together. We'd love to hear from you. So are you really interested in expanding musically or maybe expanding your career in some way, but you're not sure where to start? If so, I just want to let you know, you can reach out to me directly, chris at christianhouse.com. I always get back to emails personally. might take a day or two, but I promise you, I will get back to you. And uh, whether it's our, um, we've got a free Skype lessons that I do for folks from time to time. Um, We've got free trials of our online training. We've got workshops. We love working with people, doing teacher trainings, visiting schools. Whatever it is, I would love to find a way to connect with you and to work with you. You can learn more about the different resources we provide. Just go to christianhouse.com and click on education or email me, chris at christianhouse.com. I wanted to ask you a question about something you said earlier about how when you went to New York, you felt like, if anything, you got pushback from jazz musicians because you played the violin, which I can relate to that. 
I'm curious if you got pushback. What was the attitude when you were coming up into the jazz world? What was the attitude that you received from other people in the classical world, like other violinists who you could relate to as a violin player, but you couldn't relate to in terms of jazz versus classical maybe or whatever? Did you get, do you remember that or did you get pushback on that? No, actually, you oh. know, when I was when I was young, and, and I started when I was four, pretty young like you, I think, and we I did Suzuki, and my teacher, though, was so cool, because she would do these exercises where sometimes she'd line us up and on the Saturday class, and she'd start to make up a melody, and then you, when she tapped you, you had to continue that melody, continue, so you're improvising in, you know, classical style, but it's telephone tag, so to speak, mm -hmm. which was fun, and so she really got all of us into the mindset of not having to be on the paper. Plus, we didn't start read with reading, right. so I think it helped. And but she would tell my mom, you know, I, I was I was I came up in the '60s, and she would always tell my mom, you know, I know she wants to be a classical violinist, but she's going to have a really difficult time as an African American getting into an orchestra. I don't think it's going to happen. Wow, that was just that was real in my mind. A, I didn't want to be in the orchestra. I wanted to be the soloist with the orchestra. Sure. So from the get-go, it was just <laughs> like, I loved, I loved being on stage. You know, I loved, my mom said, you were a ham when you were little. So, you know, I just, I took dance. I loved being on stage. So I think when I, when I was introduced to jazz and knew that you could do this other music on violin, I just, this was it. There were no second thoughts about it. This is it. And I remember at that time, I was in high school, I had a different classical teacher, and he used to tell me, you're going to ruin your career. Oh, geez, yeah, right, okay. I had a master class my quartet did with Yehudi Minuin under him. And wow. he said to Yehudi Minuin, she wants to play jazz, she's going to ruin her career. And Yehudi picked up his violin and played a little blues lick and said, leave her alone. I'll <laughs> never forget that. Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> God has spoken. So, you know, I knew then, I, and I didn't know how, or you know, but you know, when you when the passion is there, you can't ignore it. The calling, when it pick, chooses you, you just have to go with it. No, my other violin friends, very, very supportive. I was still playing European classical as well, but they were really supportive, and a lot of them tried improvising too. So, you know, I went to a, a really um, famous high school called Cast Tech in Detroit, and um, Basically, I, I was in. You had to know what you wanted to major in in college when you went there, and you had to keep your grade point average really high. And so they had two really strong orchestras, bands, choir, harp and vocal, all of this, and just a kid. It was just a really supportive community of musicians. Mm. And and you know, I I got into the jazz band there, and the kids would be in between classes. That's you know, we get together and play tunes or that someone would be working on a tune that we would all learn and play. So no one, there was no weirdness of, that I got from my peers then. Wow. And it was just only when I, and you know, when I got to, I went, I spent two years at New England Conservatory. That was a little interesting because they, during my audition, they were like, there's no such thing as jazz violin. And I'm like, yes, there is. Are you kidding me? So I spent two years there, and then I couldn't deal with Boston. So I went back to Michigan. I went to school in, in, up in Rochester, Michigan, called Oakland University. When I went to the big band director there and said, I want to play jazz, he said, okay, sit in the saxophone section. He put me in the alto section. You're going to read alto charts. Breathe when they breathe. Mm. 
phrase how they phrase and stop listening to violin players. Yeah. He goes, there's too few of you out there and you're going to sound like them. You want to mm. find your own voice, which I'm so thankful to him, Dr. Yeah. Marvin Holiday. And so, wow. and then there was, like I said, a really a thriving jazz scene in Detroit. So I was hooked up with trumpeter Marcus Belgrave. I right. was working with the pianist Ken Cox. Donald Walden um, had a jazz loft. He had a, He would do things with strings. We'd have these great string charts. Um, so it wasn't until I got to New York, I remember going to a jam session with a dear, another great friend from Detroit, Mickey Braden, and we went to this club, and we signed up to sit in, and we saw all these people coming in after us, going on before us, and we kept saying, but we signed up a long time ago. And finally, he let us go, and he sees my violin, the guy running, and he goes, oh, what's she going to do with this little violin? Mm -hmm. And I was just so turned off by that but I didn't let him ruin my experience I just said okay those are your issues hmm. I didn't go back there and then I started going to other clubs that had jam sessions wow. and sitting in so I just learned you know and even you know I, I I had I was fortunate enough to work with some really great musicians at a young age and even when I moved here working with people like Kenny Barron or the string trio and they were always with with men who were who treated me with the utmost respect hmm. So once you're around that enough, you know that you know that you don't have to put up with that. Mm, wow! An a-hole is an a-hole, whether they're male or female, and you don't have to put up with that. That's amazing. Yeah, because you know, thinking on my own experience, I remember feeling like that it was really, for whatever reason, my perception was that it was hard to be um, respected or treated, included, because I played the violin. I mean, whether it was in rock bands or R&B bands or jazz bands, and, and that could have been my own projection. I think sometimes it was, the image that I think of is like going to the you know to a jam session and walking up with my violin case and people on the stage sort of like seeing the look get over their face and hearing the excuses coming like, well, the list is already full or, you know. And I remember it, it created so much uh, conflicting feelings for me, but also that that I felt like I didn't get a lot of buy-in or support from the classical community. Although I'm guessing that it may have been different in Detroit. There may have been a different um, culture in Detroit or at the school where you attended. Um, I'm not really sure. What I loved about what you just talked about was that your Suzuki teacher, at the age of four or five, for that person, it was so natural to include improvisation in your early training, and it wasn't that it wasn't rocket science, right? Like that just made it feel natural. And then also the way that your college big band teacher dealt with bringing you into the big band, and the fact that these things happened in like early 1970s and 1990s. I mean. And people today are still grappling with these very simple things that, that people can do to better integrate, right. you know, uh, different musical styles and, and skills, right? I mean. Right. And instruments. You know, I still hear, sometimes I'll have string players say to me, 
you know, the jazz band teacher won't let me in because they don't have charts for, you know, and I, mm. and I have to tell them that you'll read the alto charts, you know. Mm-hmm. Or, and if you can't read alto, then take them home and transcribe it and just keep pushing because this is what you want to do. Just keep, and sometimes people just want to see how badly do you want to do something. Right. You know. Yeah. There's always, my mother would say, there's always several ways around a speed bump. Hmm. I love that. Well, you mentioned that when you went to, and I, and I've heard this before, that when you first went to New York, you, um, you played with a lot of Latin bands. Is that a fair way to describe it? Or could you talk more about that? No, I actually, when I first got here, I was playing more on the downtown scene. You know, oh. The String Trio of New York, the Dave Soldier Quartet. Um, Can you explain that for people that may not know what the downtown scene yeah, is? Yeah, I don't even, I don't even know what it means. Okay. But, um, a lot of a, a lot of the bands that were playing pieces, uh, not your jazz standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more contemporary, pieces, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, pieces by like people, brilliant composers like Anthony Davis, Wadada Leo Smith, Muhal Richard Abrams. Um, and a lot of the pieces might have altered techniques, which right. is something I had to, I remember the first time I think I saw a piece by Wadada Leo Smith and it had looked like math equations and the music and some other, and I freaked out and I called the guys in the string trio and I was like, I can't do this. I don't even know what this is. I don't like, what does this mean? I've never seen this. And, and they were like, Oh, don't worry. You'll be in it. I just, until I got there and then they, I saw and they explained to me what it meant and it really stretched me musically, stretched my mind, stretched my playing. I think it was a great experience to have. And with the soldier quartet, but the altered, you know, sometimes having to put a paper clip in between the strings or paper and get these other sounds, which is great, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we grow up with playing classical, European classical music. And if it's a standard repertoire, you might not use any of those techniques. We all have this misconception of what the violin is and what it can do. And it's like, no, it's, it's way more than that. You know, Um, Hmm. it's just a piece of wood with some strings on it. (laughs) And, And, you know, that's, if you look at it like that, it has all kinds of possibilities. I don't even know how I met these guys, but I went to a club called Gonzales y Gonzales in new in new york and it was a charanga band and uh it was a uh, great violinist rob thomas ali bayo and sam bartfell mm-hmm. killing 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 string players and then it flute and, and percussion no drum set um piano bass and the and the singers and just that music just touched something really deep in me and i used to love to go and dance and listen to them I don't know. And I think maybe I sat in once and then like I was sub for those guys or sometimes he'd use a fourth violinist. And I just really I've never been a strong sight reader. So that really would kick my butt because sometimes like Johnny would just pull up some charts and I'd be like, okay, well, might not be the note, but I could hear. I think because of the Suzuki, I'd hear where it was going, and it would be, I'd pick a note, it'd be in the court, and the rhythm was <laughs> <laughs> what was on that paper, you know? <laughs> so, but it was, it was, I, I played with them for years, and just learned so much about that music, um, and then I had a chance to work with uh, the pianist Oriente Lopez, who was from Cuba, and then I had a chance to go to Cuba, and just, I I just that music I love it I can't still sit still when I hear it and you know there's so much to learn about that music but you know people like Sam and Ali have really they really have dug into that music and really know it 
really well. So, hmm. yeah. Well, do you think that, I mean, it's occurring to me that um, you're very ecle- you have very eclectic tastes. You, you love to do it all in music. I mean, you love classical music. Um, you played straight ahead. You played, you've done African project. You've done, you know, a tribute to music from the South. You've played in Latin influenced bands. You played in the downtown scene, which a lot of people would describe as sort of like the free jazz or whatever. Um, and I know you've also done really traditional leaning, you know, more early jazz stuff. Would you say that because there's such a, um, there's such a rarity of violinists or, you know, that that's what allows string players in New York, the opportunity to be so eclectic and that otherwise, if you played a different instrument, people would try to pigeonhole you into one style. So in other words, it's like. If you go to New York, like whether it's a Latin band or a downtown thing or anything that's looking for a string player, there's only a hand people, handful of people they're going to call. Do you think that's true and that that helped you to be able to work in so many different scenes or not? I don't know. I never thought of it that way. That's okay. Interesting. That's, I, yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I remember when I first moved to New York and um, I had some pe- numbers of people to call and one person I spoke to said, you know, be careful doing all this different music because people are going to say you're not serious. And I think growing up in Detroit, there were so many cultures that migrated to Detroit because of the automotive industry and because of Motown. So I was in neighborhoods and going to school. Like Detroit has the, the, the largest Arab community outside, you know, the, the Chaldean population in, is in Detroit, the lar- largest community. So I go to school and have friends that were from, you know, all over the world. You know, we had, a, there's a huge Greek population, huge Polish, um, Mexican, just everything. So you're in school with these people, you're friends with them, you go to their homes you know, you eat, you're eating the food from their homes, you know, that that's, and you're hearing music, their classical music a lot of times. So I was exposed um, to a lot of different cultures and their music at a very early age. And the one thing I remember one day just kind of stopping and saying, wow, almost in every music that exists on the planet, there's a stringed instrument, whether it's violin or an instrument that the violin is related to. Mm-hmm. And that then was just, I found that to be pretty exciting. And I just felt like I could fit in so many different genres because we string player, there's strings almost in everything. Mm-hmm. There's strings. There's some strings that exist. So I think because of that, I felt like I, I, I didn't have any limitations. Like, you know, when you got to work, you got to work. So when I was here and I had to pay that rent, you know, it's like, oh, there's a Motown band. I could do that. Play some strings, sing some backgrounds. Oh, there's this. Yes, I could. And I think, yeah, maybe, maybe be, I think of it more because those musics all include strings that it was, that it's easier. But yeah, like you said, because there's so few of us. It's not like being a saxophonist where, you know, if I were trying to do all that, then maybe people would say, ah, no, you can't do that. (laughs) But I think it helps being a string player Mm. in that sense.
hearing you talk about, you know, your life and your training, it feels like it was in some ways almost seamless, like how you've done so many different things as a musician and that there weren't, you know, these, there weren't necessarily huge barriers to doing all these different things. But based on this, the story about your big band teacher in college who, who didn't stop you or, or your Suzuki teacher who sort of effortlessly integrated the idea that improvisation, you know, I'm sure there were other things that weren't as easy, but, but hearing you talk about it, it's, it's refreshing this idea of, you know, having a life as a musician that can be so diverse. And, um, I wonder if you feel like the classical music world or the jazz music world, <laughs> if there's anything that they can do to make the training for other young people to be as seamless as it seemed like it was for you. Like, is there anything that you would like to see change in classical music education or in the jazz industry in terms of pedagogy? Well, I think especially, well, I'm happy to see more now that in, in well, for schools that still have music, <laughs> that teachers seem to be uh, introducing jazz to their string players at an early age. And it's great to see that there are folks out here, string players that are writing pieces for string players, you know, orchestra, string orchestras, so they have a rep, some repertoire to play. And or some of the teachers can um, transcribe uh, tunes that are on the radio that that their kids are. I think you have. I think we have to reach children where they are, and then you can. You know, I was talking to Lenny White about that last night about like how a lot of times. In institutions, they try to just say, this is what you have to learn. And they're starting mm. from something that these kids have no connection to. But if you start where they are and kind of work backwards or let them see this is where that came from, this was influenced by this, then then they'd be a little more interested. But, you know, I'm, I'm always shocked sometimes still to hear classical violin players will say, some say, their teachers say, oh, don't listen to that music, or to think that jazz or any other music is a lesser music than European classical music, and that's very dangerous. That's a very dangerous mindset, because you're not only talking about a music, you're talking about the people right. from which that music comes. But I think they do their, their students a disservice, because when you get out here, how many seats are available in these major orchestras? Hmm. Right. You know, these people stay there and they retire. So how many seats are going to open up and what are you going to do? You may not be able to be a soloist with an orchestra, so you have to be able to diversify. And and I think it just makes you a better musician. You know, even if you don't want to play jazz or play any other style of music outside of European classical music, I think hearing and being exposed to it, it can only, it, it can only add to your musicality. Yeah, well said. And, and I, it takes me back to what we talked about in the beginning in relation to your working in hospice. What is our purpose as musicians, you know, to get out of the way, to allow the spirit to come through, to connect with people? And if we're so caught up in, you know, who's got the most flawless vibrato, it's, it sort of gets in the, you know, it sort of gets in the way. But having more, just having more diverse experiences, playing music, because there's also different the way that you play music when you're in an orchestra versus other contexts other cultural contexts or whatever 
And every time you get a chance to do that, it really opens you up to what's what it is to be a musician, I think. And I feel like the classical world is sort of missing out on that. And, and you know, the mindset is an interesting thing. As a, and I don't know if you experienced this um, when you were coming up as a string player, but in the European classical world, you know, it was just so competitive a lot of times. The one thing I noticed when I got to New York and I would watch especially jazz musicians, but like drummers or trumpet players, there was a community. Like they would support each other. They mm. go to each other's gig. They hang out and listen to music. They do. But like with European classical violinists, uh, string players, like I had my group of people that I grew up with. Mm. And we, they were my friends too because that's all I was doing was music pretty much. And that's all we So we were the geeky music kids. And, and we're still all really good friends. You know, they, they live everywhere. But a lot of times, like once I got to the conservatory, there was it was like this competition, especially if you're working on the same piece or who. And then you feel like you're you're competing for this job, the same job when you get out. And it was just there was no sense really of community. And some of that I find in the jazz world. But luckily, I, I, I feel like more than not, there's more of a sense of community. Like string players will support each other more so in jazz. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the ones that don't, I think they still have that mentality that there's only one gig, one seat. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation with one someone once. They were saying that they hoped another jazz violinist who was up and coming. They said, I hope she gets there. I hope she makes it there. And I said, makes it where? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, the fact that any of us are doing this, right? we're making it, you yeah, know? We're doing yeah. something we love in life. No matter what, if you're doing something you love, you're making it. There is no there. There is no, you know, there's always something to learn. And there's always going to be someone better than us that we can learn from. And there's no one gig, no one seat. We all have a purpose here. And I think if we can remember that, we can be supportive of one another and be there and root each other on because mm. we are all on our own journey. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think that in other areas of music where there is a creative voice is encouraged, the individual creative voice is encouraged, that, that somehow that lends itself to being more supportive because we're not comparing ourselves necessarily in the same way. Because it's like, you know, I can say Regina sounds like Regina, I sound like me, Sarah sounds like Sarah whoever it might be, and we can celebrate those differences. And that, I think that's part of being a creative musician. Whereas if we're all vying for a chair in a section, it's like, who played better? You know, who who right. played worse? You know, it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. I think even probably in like Winton's band, you know, there's like four trumpet players and they sort of all celebrate, you know, their individual sound. And, and that, I don't know, that's just one thing that came up for me. That That's it's one of the advantages of being a creative musician, you know, or, or going beyond just the limits of playing classical music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Whoops. Yeah, I remember meeting a, a young woman once. Um, was I in South Carolina? And she works for Elsa Stimenow there. And she was saying when she was in school, uh, did she go to Juilliard or I can't remember, but they were auditioning for, I guess, the first violin chair. And then they would post it on the wall who, you know, the audition, uh, who got what seat, blah, blah, blah. And she saw this girl that she didn't know who got the concert mistress chair. And she goes, oh, she must have studied with this person. And she must have said she obviously, you know, all these. And then she said she met the young lady and found out she was, she was out of the Elsa Stemma program and just, you know, worked <laughs> to get there. And she said that really changed her whole mindset after that, you know, because wow. Sometimes, you know, you can get this, I studied with blah, 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 you know, it just doesn't matter. You've been so generous with your time, but I wanted to ask you, where can people find you online? Where can they look for stuff about Regina Carter online? Um, I have a website. <laughs> I'm old school. <laughs> ReginaCarter.com. Sweet. I'm on, I, I have a Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> Social media and me don't give long. It's like a dinosaur. <laughs> but I have a Facebook page, and I'm on Twitter. I really, really appreciate you spending time and, and agreeing to do this interview. It means a lot oh. to me. I know it's going to mean a lot uh -huh. to other people. Thank you, Christian. Really, I am. And you know I'm a big fan of yours, so. You're too kind. And, and I just want to acknowledge, there's so many things I could acknowledge you about you, but one of the things that comes up for me today that I'm just so inspired by is your uh, your grace your authenticity you're keeping it real i feel like in so many ways you really embody grace and you embody gracefulness and uh it's really um it's inspiring it's inspired i'm inspired by you thank you thank you Don't you just wonder um, how somebody that great can be so cool and amazing <laughs> uh, in every way, you know, uh, very humbling and uh, a great uh, dose of perspective to be able to spend time with Regina. And um, again, I'm just really grateful to Regina for spending her time uh, for this podcast. It really means a lot. Thank you, Regina. Um, if you guys are digging the podcast as usual, please share it out make sure you subscribe leave a review if you don't mind and as always you can get in touch with me uh, directly just reach out to me chris at christianhouse.com um, with anything that's on your mind you reach out to me i love to get feedback on the podcast you can also hit me up at uh, on facebook or wherever um, make sure to keep an eye out if you go to christianhouse.com and uh, click education you want to look for the creative strings workshops 
which we've got a lot of them now. And they're in the winter, they're in the summer. You want to look for one near you and you want to jump on it soon because we've got, you know, we've got um, early discounts going. So definitely check it out. Even if you're not, even if it's a long time until summer, go and look at the different workshops that we have that are, that are coming up all over the world. Um, we want you to come and experience the workshops because there's really nothing like that intensive experience with like-minded, passionate uh, musicians, just working on music, working on being better human beings. Um, it's, it's really a labor of love for me. It's, it's kind of one of the biggest things that kind of makes my world go round. I want to make sure to connect with you in person at one of the Creative Strings workshops. So again, go to christianhouse.com, click on education, look for Creative Strings workshop. Huge thanks to our sponsors, as always, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. And don't forget to check out Electric Violin Shop's very own podcast. It's called Rockstar Violinist. Thank you all so much, and we will see you next time.